Thank you, Abigail. Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Lee Hansen, and I serve on staff here as the Director of Student Ministries. It's been a big year for me, like a really big year. And I knew it was a big year, and and so I wanted to sit down and think about it in an intentional way. And and so I, I took out a pen and a piece of paper, and I wrote down all the things that have happened to me or that I've walked through in the past 12 months. And I wanted to share a few of those with you. I got married. I officiated my grandpa's funeral. I got promoted. I continued to pursue my master's in grad school. I built a house. I've had three different bosses. I tried to learn to be a good husband all on top of working my regular job. Now, you might imagine that that I'm a little on edge. And I was talking with my wife the other day, and she asked me what I was going to give up for Lent. And I thought about it, and I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to give up being such a jerk for Lent. (laughs) Because I don't know if you're like me. Does anyone else in the room totally lose themselves and get violently angry with customer service people on the phone? Anybody? Am I alone? I'm alone. There's a couple of you. Thank you for being brave. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because they don't know that I'm a pastor. They can't tell Crosby. It just feels so safe. Well, that kind of backfired uh, a couple days ago. I, uh, I got a call from my cable company. I moved. I told you I built a house. And uh, lucky me, I get to pay rent at the lease I signed on the other apartment while we're living in our new house. But Comcast called and they told me that I had to return my cable box. And this set me off. I'm thinking, I paid you $200 to come to my house and set it up. I then paid you $200 a month so I could watch TV and be on the internet. And you want me to drive to Egan? Who lives in Egan? (laughs) To drop off my cable box. And so I told her, I said, I'm not doing it. You can bill me or you're going to need to come and pick this thing up. And I don't think she'd ever really had that response before. So she said, I just, I need to call you back. So a couple of days later, I, my phone rings and I get a call from this gentleman named Dave. And Dave was like very kind, very, very gentle, very humble. And uh, I explained to Dave my predicament. I said, you're going to need to pick this thing up. And he said, well, where do you live? I told him where I live. And he said, you know what? I happen to drive by there all the time. So why don't you bring it to your house and I'll swing by and I'll pick it up. And I said, great, not a problem. And so I was supposed to leave it there this morning at my house for Dave to pick up. And I get in my car and what's still in my back seat as I pull into Starbucks, my cable box. So I call Dave and I say, Dave, I'm so sorry. I totally blew it. I forgot. And my cable box is in my back seat. And so once again, Dave graciously asked me, says, well, Lee, where do you work? (laughs) And I said, Christ, (laughs) and he said, no kidding. I said, yeah, no, no kidding. (laughs) He said, well, it's funny because I actually have driven by that place a hundred times and I've always wanted to come in and I never have. And I said, well, Dave, today happens to be Ash Wednesday (laughs) and I'm actually preaching. Would you like to come? And so Dave came to the noon service. He picked up my cable box (laughs) and God continues to humble me (laughs) and redeem the ugly, broken areas of my life. And for that, I'm so grateful. This is a true story. <laughs> but really, as I, as I think about what the whole of this last year has looked like, 
and the way I've spent my time and the things I've given my energy to. My heart's a little sad because as my schedule got busier and busier, I started to sleep in a little bit longer and pray a little bit less. And time that I used to spend sitting with Jesus and fellowshipping in the word with with a God I love and serve was replaced with answering a few more emails and reading a few more pages in my textbooks. And I remember seasons of my life where I had this deep dependence on Jesus. But this past year hasn't really been one of those seasons. And decision by decision, I I slowly took Jesus off the throne of my heart and I replaced him with my own competency, my own capacity, my own abilities, and the gifts that he gave me. And just yesterday, I I kind of fell apart. I ended up in John Mitchell's office, who's one of my bosses, and and I was literally in tears, waving my white flag, telling John, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep up with all these things. I'm tired of trying so hard. I I can't do it. Just yesterday, my humanity stared me right back in my face. And I was reminded of how broken I am and how lost I've gotten. And it didn't all happen at once. And I didn't do it on purpose. And I didn't even know that I was doing it. But over this past year, what I've been telling God by the way I spend my time is that I know better than you. And by my lack of prayer, I suggest to God that that I don't really need you. I got this. And my desire to achieve and perform and my, my deep need for perfection continues to reveal how little I understand of what it means that God is fully pleased in the fact that I'm his beloved son. And I don't want to stay there. Sin is a, is a weird and strange thing. And, and as I thought more about how we get into the places that we do, I, I realized that there, there are kind of two types of sinners. There are those that, that think they're really not all that bad. You know, you don't swear, you don't chew, you don't hang out with people that do. You've got a squeaky clean resume, you've probably never been in jail. But your thought process is tainted with judgment and pride, and arrogance. And then there's the other types of sinners, those of us that know we're sinners, because we can't hide it. And our lives look a little bit messier than everybody else's. Our grades are tanking, our our families are falling apart. Some of us wear our sin on our sleeve. And I think it's really easy when you're on either side to point the finger at the other and label them the sinner, isn't it? But if you think about it, it really makes no difference whether you wear it on your sleeve or you carefully manage your life so that no one can see it. Because whether you spend your time in in holy huddles or you hang out with the drunks and the prostitutes, each and every single one of us is left in the same human condition, that we are broken, messy, sinful people. And each and every single one of us deeply and desperately needs to experience redemption that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. I want you to sit with that for a minute. 
Really let that in. This isn't about him or her, the one sitting next to you, or the person you're thinking about that you wish was here. This is for you. And this is for me. It's for us. We're all on a level playing field when it comes to sin. One of my favorite spiritual authors, Brendan Manning, says this. He says, At Sunday worship, as in every other dimension of our existence, many of us pretend to believe we are sinners. And consequently, all we can do is pretend that we've been forgiven. As a result, our whole spiritual life is pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. Another one of my favorite authors, Ruth Haley Barton, says this about Lent and Ash Wednesday and the season we're walking into. She says, The Lenten season often gets reduced to the question, What are you giving up for Lent? And that's a fine question, but it can only take us so far. The real question of the Lenten season is, How will I repent and return to God with all of my heart? Not what am I going to give up, but how am I going to repent and return to God with all of my heart. Well, my friends, in order for us to repent, we have to first grasp, internalize, and accept the reality that we are sinful, broken people who deeply need Jesus. And it's funny to me how much energy and time I spend hiding and managing my sin, isn't it? And I love this day. I love this service because today, we all agree that we're messed up. And even if it's just for one day today, as we bear a cross of ashes on our forehead, our, our outsides will match our insides. As we collectively come together to identify our humanity and our need to return to God and allow Jesus to reclaim his rightful place on the throne of our hearts. There's a guy in the Bible that I love to talk about. His name's David. Many of you know him. The, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And I love David because he reminds me a lot of myself. He does a lot of really stupid stuff. But he really genuinely loves Jesus. And he loved God with all of his heart. But David got pretty messed up and he got pretty far off. He slowly put himself on, on his throne of his heart and took God off. And he found himself in a desperate place. And he, he writes one of the most beautiful psalms and one of the most beautiful cries to God that comes from such a deep and earnest place in his soul. I want to read that to you today. It's in Psalm 51. David says this. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now, some of you know that the book of Psalms are actually a book of songs to be sung back to the Lord. It's, it's how they've been traditionally practiced. 
And maybe like me, sometimes you'll sing songs that you don't really think about the words or know what they mean. And for years, there was a hymn I sang that all of you know. And I had no idea what the words were. It's the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And when you understand what led to that beautiful song, it changes everything. It takes it to a whole other place in your heart because the guy who wrote that song, Horatio Spafford, was suffering horribly. He was in terrible financial ruin. He had just lost his four daughters in a horrible accident as their ship sank and they went down with it. And he received a telegram from his wife that said, saved alone. And as Horatio boarded a ship to meet his grieving wife, the captain, as they were passing where the ship had sank and his daughters had died, let him know about it. And he penned the words of that song. And in his grief, out of his pain and his misery, he was able to say these words about God. He says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't know what it takes to write something like that and the pain that goes into penning those words and to ascribe to God that it is well with my soul in the midst of my deepest, darkest hour. But when we understand all that led up to that, that hymn, it changes things. And this psalm is beautiful in and of itself. That David's cry for mercy and his honestness before God is a beautiful thing. But in the same way, if we don't understand the story that leads up to David writing this, it doesn't go quite to the place that I think it should. David was the king of all of Israel. Over all of God's people, he had had a big year. And he decided, instead of going out to war with his army, that he was going to stay at home and get some rest. And in the midst of that process, David got captivated by his lust and his sexual desire took over. And he saw a woman and he, and he sent for her because he's the king and he could. And he forcefully slept with this woman. A couple of weeks later, probably not as David had planned, Bathsheba comes back and tells him that she's pregnant. Now what? Instead of doing the right thing and and stopping it right there, David's sin continued to tug at his heart and pull him deeper. And one said led to another. And so he said, why don't you bring her husband home from the war? And so David brought him home and he got him wasted. He got him drunk and he tried to get him to have sex with his wife so that everyone would think that it was his kid. But this guy wouldn't have it. He said, not while my other men and my brothers are out at war. I'm not going to come home and sleep with my wife continues to fail and not going like David wanted. So instead of doing the right thing, David's sin continued to pull him deeper. So he told the leaders, the generals of his army, he said, I want you to put Uriah, who was this woman's husband, put him on the front lines of the battle and let him die. David committed murder. Fast forward a couple of weeks later, God in his grace and his mercy, after David continued to not listen time after time after time, sent the prophet to speak a word into David's life which brought him to write this psalm. And when we know how deep and dark the hour was that David was experiencing this psalm, it changes things. The psalms paint overarching themes and let us know about big pictures of who God is. And they they hold timeless truths that were true back then, that are true today, that will be true for the rest rest of time. I want to suggest a couple of those today. First and foremost, I think in this psalm, one of the, one of the things that stuck out to me is that, that we see so clearly God's character. 
and this cry to the Lord, we, we see God's character. There was this confidence that David had about knowing and trusting God that allowed him at rock bottom in the midst of a horribly tough time to know and to seek and to claim God's complete and total forgiveness. Think about that list. Murderer, adulterer, liar. And in the middle of that, David was able to come and say, cleanse me thoroughly. Wash me, make me whiter than snow. What audacity. What did David know about God's character that I don't? Because I'm not very good at that. And maybe you're like me, and when I sin, especially when I blow it big time, I have this weird thing that I, it's like I want to punish myself. Because I think if I walk around in guilt enough, and, and if I'm hard enough on myself, then, then God will know that I'm really sorry. And, and like I can add to what Jesus has already finished on the cross. And I think it's one of Satan's greatest tools about sin in our lives. Because he wants to heap on the shame, and he wants to heap on the guilt, and he wants to keep us in anxiety and fear and isolation. But that's not God's desire. That, that, that God's desire is that not that we would carelessly or recklessly come to him without realizing and taking account for what we've done, but that there is nothing, not one thing that you could do that God would not forgive if you come to a place of true repentance. Not one thing. You cannot sin your way out of God's love. I love the picture I get of God's character in this psalm. And I don't want us to be half-alive Christians. I don't want us to be half-alive believers walking around in our, and wallowing in our shame and our guilt and our pain. I want us to be people that know enough about who God is to know that our loving Father will embrace us and accept us as we come to him in our brokenness. David had an accurate picture of God's character. The second thing I love about this psalm, I think David models for us what it looks like to truly repent and to take responsibility. He truly repents and he takes responsibility. Listen to what he says. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David fully owned this ugly list and it was a really ugly list. Think about all that had happened in his life and think about all the excuses that David could have come up with. Dude, it is tough to be the king of Israel. It was her fault. You don't know what it's like to be me. He could have done so many excuses. He could have pointed so many fingers, but he didn't. He owned it. And he accepted responsibility for what he had done. I think about how, how little I do this. I think about my sweet wife who comes to me and, and, and gently calls me out when I've been a jerk or when I've hurt her feelings or said something rude. And, and she'll say something like, Lee, you know, when you did this, it really hurt my feelings. And you know what my response is? My godly mature response? Yeah, well, you did this. And you did this and this and this. And when you said this, that hurt me too. How lame. And why is that our response to, to blame shift and to point fingers? Who does that? I don't want to do that. But David in the psalm doesn't do that. He accepts responsibility for what he did, and he truly gets to a place of repentance. And I love that he repents for the right reasons. I love that in the psalm he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. What broke David's heart was getting to a place that he knew he broke God's. What broke David's heart was getting to a place that he knew 
he broke God's. And I love that picture. God, against you and you only have I sinned. So often I'm sorry because I don't like how I feel. Or I'm sorry because I want the situation to change. Or I want the circumstance to look a little bit different. Rarely do I repent. And rarely am I sorry because I've grieved God's heart. But I think that's genuine repentance. And that's the type of repentance that leads to obedience and fellowship. David truly repented and accepted responsibility. The last thing I love about this psalm is we see a beautiful picture of God's gracious gift to us. In the midst of hard times, in the midst of sin, when we turn our back, God continues to move towards us. When you know the story and you see how many opportunities, time after time after time, that David had to do the right thing or to turn back to God, to cry out for help, and he chose not to again and again and again. And God in his grace and in his steadfast love and abundant mercy sends David a prophet to speak into his life, to bring him back into reconciliation and fellowship and a right relationship with himself. What a gracious gift. One of my favorite musicians, Matt Redman, tweeted a couple of weeks ago and he said that God never grows tired of extending his mercy. We grow tired of seeking it. God never grows tired of extending his mercy. We grow tired of seeking it. There's this Hebrew idea, there's this Hebrew phrase, it's kal wa'omer. And this Hebrew phrase, it's a type of an argument, and, and it literally means lesser to greater. But I think an easier way to understand it is this idea of how much more. Jesus used this language all the time when he was trying to help people understand what God is like. He talked about how if you and your wickedness And in your brokenness and your sin can give a child a good gift. How much more must your father in heaven be able to bless you with good gifts? You see the birds and the sparrows in the fields and you see how they're provided for. How much more must God the father love and provide for you? This idea that Jesus used to describe God's character took a place in my heart a couple years ago as I I was watching my nephews. I've got three five-year-old nephews. And they're everything that little boys should be. They're naughty and funny and loud and obnoxious. And I love them. And one of my nephews in particular went into my bathroom and he thought it was a really good idea to take everything in my bathroom from my toothbrush to my deodorant and everything in between and fill my toilet with it. (laughs) One by one, Aiden gently and and not so gently threw all my stuff into my toilet and uh, it didn't turn out well. Most of it didn't come out. We had to call the plumber. It was hundreds of dollars. It was not a good thing. But I'll never forget. I will never forget when my nephew hung his head and wouldn't look me in the eyes and mumbled underneath his breath, I'm sorry. And my heart sank in that moment and I grabbed his face and I looked him in the eye and I said, Aiden, what you did was wrong but I love you and I forgive you. And you don't have to hang your head and come to me. You don't have to hide from me. You can look me in the face. My heart just went out to him and I wanted wanted him to know that it was going to be okay and that I loved him and assured him of those things. That what he did was wrong, but it didn't change the way I view him. And I don't want him to hang his head and not look me in the eye when he's done something wrong. And in that moment, I experienced this idea of Kawa Omer. If I 
in the midst of my sin and my depravity, am able to move towards a nephew like that. How much more? Must the God of infinite mercy and abundant steadfast love be able to forgive us and have a desire to move towards us as we come to him broken and full of repentance, yearning to be restored in fellowship with him? Kawa Omer, how much more? I love how David ends the psalm. He, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I think about you and I think about me. And I think about that cross. And friends, the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that as we continue to move away and turn our backs and fall into sin, God doesn't wash his hands of us. He doesn't turn his back to us. He continues to move towards us, and not just to move towards us, but while we were yet sinners, in the midst of all this story we've been talking about, God sent his son, and he offered the world the most costly sacrifice we will ever know. In the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So my hope for us this Lenten season is that we can cling to that. My hope for us is that we sinners would repent and believe that God is not yet done with us. We've created a, a devotional to walk through over these next 40 some days. And I want to invite you to do that with us. We'll be passing it out as you leave today. And it's a daily look at how the gospel intersects our, our lives. How does that cross in my life intersect? And what does that mean? And over that time, I, I, my hope and my prayer is, is that you would reframe and that you would claim and cling to an accurate picture of God's character. And as you do, the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ would transform your heart and lead you to a broken place, a place full of repentance and need and desperation for God as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection. Let me pray. God, would you do this psalm in us? Would you do this psalm amongst us? And as we enter into an intentional season of examining ourselves and, and partnering with your spirit to fully restore our relationship with you, God, would you meet us where we're at? Thanks, God, that you really are gracious and full of steadfast love and mercy. May we cling to that as we come to you. Amen.